This is Pastor Clint Ribble, and you're listening to the Grace Point Church Podcast. For more information, please visit gracepoint.net. I quickly, as a young minister, began to evolve and stretch. Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr. said, the mind once exposed to a better idea can never shrink to its original size. And that's hard because in that little world when your mind does begin to stretch, it's reported as heresy or apostasy or um, the devil has the mind as his playground and there's lots of fear involved in all of that. But my Methodist neighbor lady handed me a book in 1988, 89 by a Church of Christ guy called Max Licato. And we for our little denomination, we considered that propaganda. We called it external literature. We weren't supposed to read that. But I read it in the closet, and uh, it moved me. And little by little, I started. I started a process of disassociating to some degree from the ideas that I was reared on, but still feeling a deep penchant and passion for who Jesus was. I found my way into a world where I was literarily pastored. It was not optimal. I would have rather had flesh and blood pastors and bishops and superintendents. But in the absence of those, I found pastors through my reading. I found Beekner and Nowen and Langle and people that I would never meet in person. But they pastored me and they led me upstream past the bog of doubt and exclusivism out to a wider world until finally I found this great ocean called um, the community of faith. And in that ocean, I've continued to be literarily pastored. One of the deficits of an interdenominational church is you miss the collegiality, the camaraderie, the oversight of a denomination, and that's not something that I espouse. It's uh, one of the weaknesses of the world that we live in uh, ecclesially as a church. But I have continued having people in my life that I have never met, never seen, they don't know who I am, but they have continued to be voices of influence. And so a few months ago, I suppose over a year ago, we decided as a church that we would try to have some of those folk in, people who've not only influenced me, but have influenced you, and I think are influencing the body of Christ. And so we've been privileged to do that. And today we're having um, a fellow speak for us, Brian McLaren. I found his book, a generous orthodoxy which so resonated with me. I remember thinking, why didn't I write this? Number one, I'm not that good of a writer. Number two, I didn't have that good of an idea, but I still thought, why didn't I write this? And it so resonated with me, it's generous spirit. I so love history. I so resist the temptation of simple rhetorical labels like traditional and progressive, conservative and liberal. Um, some would call me liberal. I feel like I'm conservative because I'm desperately trying to conserve what I think is the heart of God and the ministry of Jesus. Some would say progressive is a tension with the traditional. I, I think that's wrong. I think at the heart of traditional Christianity is a progressive spirit. It was the ministry of Jesus and Paul. And Brian, in his book, Generous Orthodoxy, did his best to resist that divisive way, that condescending tone that we use toward one another. And I so appreciated that because I believe in the end, um, love is actually at the center of the universe and attitude and motive means more to God. So since that time, since I read and 
this well-tattered book, if I had 10 books out of my thousands that I would take to a desert island with me, Generous Orthodoxy would actually be one of the 10. And um, I got to meet Brian yesterday, which was a thrill for me, and he sat, and he was just as generous as his writings, and I suppose he'll be just that generous with us this morning. So I want him to come. You've been a big influence on me and as well on this church in turn. A lot of these people, people have read you. For those that haven't, uh, would you welcome Brian McLaren? Well, I uh, thank you so much, Stan. I, I feel like I made a new friend last night, and I feel like I'm making some more this morning. I feel so at home. Uh, and uh, boy, wasn't that music just beautiful? I guess for all of you who are here, you're probably used to it. You don't realize what a special gift that is. But for all of us visitors, that was special. I, everybody has their own idea of heaven, you know. Uh, my, mine uh, involves a, a trout stream. Uh, and slide guitar. I'm sure it involves slide guitar. Harps are okay, but my version has a slide guitar. I'm also really happy to be here with some very good friends. My literary agent, Kathy Homers, is here. My, my former publisher and editor and dear friend, Wendy Grisham, is here. And I, some friends of mine are here I went to high school with, which is very funny because I had a lot of hair back then. Uh, those were you know, the days of long hair and beards. And a friend of mine said, you used all yours up at once. I, I was born in New York State, so I was really a Yankee. <laughs> no trouble. I don't want to cause any trouble. And uh, then uh, lived in the Midwest for a while, and then uh, my family settled in Maryland, which is you know right at the juncture, the Mason-Dixon line between the North and the South. And uh, uh, so I, I spent most of my life in Maryland, and then eight. Uh, Years ago, uh, five, six years ago, five and a half years ago, I moved to Florida. I'm, I'm losing my memory at my advanced age, but I moved to Southwest Florida. Uh, so for the last several years of my life, if, if I started in the north and then I went to kind of the middle, now I've been in the deep, 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 deep south. Maybe that's why I like slide guitars. I don't know. But... Um, you know, one thing, when you live in the South, there's a, a brand of the Christian faith that is just sort of, sort of melted into the water. You know, you drink the water and you sort of get it. Uh, even people who have no real affinity with a Christian commitment sort of absorb this kind of general Southern Christianity. And one of the characteristics of uh, Southern Christianity is people just know certain words. They know with absolute 100% certainty what those words mean. One of those words is saved or salvation. Uh, a lot of, let me just ask, how many of you grew up in a church where everybody talked about getting saved? How, see, yeah. Some of you said we didn't talk about that. We talked about tithing, you know, but <laughs> others of us, uh, everything was about getting saved. And everybody knew what that meant. And in fact, we, in my tradition, a lot like Stan's, we learned, we sort of learned how to select different verses out of the Bible and string them together in a certain outline to explain the world. We called it a biblical worldview. The problem for me came, and I'm sure this is similar for Stan, is when I was a pastor and actually had to preach 
week after week after year, I started reading the verses in between the ones that we pulled out and memorized. <laughs> a friend of mine called it the white pages of the Bible because certain pages that get yellow because you touch them all the time and in between were the ones you never touch. When I read the white pages, uh, I started noticing that there was just stuff there that didn't match with the version that I'd been sort of so carefully taught. And so, uh, you know, since we're here, as they say, in the, in the belt of the, in the buckle of the Bible belt, I'd like to cause a little trouble tonight, and I'd like to, or today, and I'd like to look at that word saved, salvation, in a fresh way. And the best place to do that is one of the passages I was taught to extract a couple of verses from. Uh, it's in the book of Acts, chapter 16. It's really important. I, this word is so important in the Christian faith. It's so important in the world today. And I'd like to ask you all if you'd open your minds and give yourself a, a, a permission to look at that word uh, in, in a fresh way. Uh, it, it, now, we're, almost, we're about halfway through the book of Acts when we come to Acts 16. And if you've ever thought about it this way, I'm going to put up my invisible map. Here's the Mediterranean Sea. Spain is over here. Israel, Palestine's over here. And so the book of Acts starts in Jerusalem, and it ends up in Rome, uh, halfway down the boot, you know, of the, of the, uh, of the Italian peninsula. And so really the, the story of the book of Acts is a travel journey, uh, a, a travelogue from Jerusalem to Rome. If you want to think about it this way, Jesus had proclaimed something called the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. Uh, and, um, the, and that word kingdom is the same word as empire in, in the ancient world. So in some ways, the story of the book of Acts is how the message of the kingdom of God or the empire of God or the kingdom of heaven confronts the kingdom of Rome or the empire of Rome or the, the, the realm of Caesar, how this message of God confronts the superpowers of the world. Now, I'll tell you, if, if Jesus were here today doing his, his thing, I'm not sure where, this, where the counterpart to Rome would be. It might be the Pentagon. It might be Wall Street. It might be Los Angeles. Uh, it might with this whole entertainment world. It might be London as a financial center. I don't know. But if you think about it, the, the book of Acts is about a confrontation between a way of life that comes from God and the way of life that's centered in this world and its economy and its politics, its way of doing things. And um, so when you come to Acts 16, it's interesting, we're at about halfway through the book of Acts and we're about halfway to Rome. Uh, and here's how the passage begins. It's Acts 16, uh, verse uh, 11. We set, out, uh, we set sail from Troas, and took a straight course to Samothrace the following day to Neapolis and from there to Philippi. And of course, we read all those words and they're just names. But imagine if we were to read it like this. We left from Ferguson, Missouri and went to Detroit and then went to Arlington, Virginia, where the Pentagon, near the Pentagon. You see, suddenly now those cities have meaning. We know things have happened there that uh, uh, awaken our imagination. And boy, when you read that word Philippi in the ancient world, that was a big deal because uh, uh, Acts says Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. 
So it's like saying, look, Rome is where we're going. The headquarters of this worldly empire, the headquarters of the system, the headquarters of the establishment, the headquarters of the global economy and political uh, empire is there. And Philippi is an outpost of Rome. It's a colony of Rome. And so now this message of Jesus, the kingdom of God, is going to actually be proclaimed in a Roman colony. This is a really, really uh, big deal. We remain in this city for some days. On the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate by the river where we supposed there was a place of prayer, and we sat down and spoke to the women who had gathered there. Now, do you feel the geography here? The outskirts of the city, the margins. And out on the margins, that's where the women have gathered and for a, a women's place of prayer. So this whole idea of the margins, colony of Rome, and now the margins of the city, and it's a group of women who the message comes to first. If you know anything about Luke, who wrote the Gospel of Luke in the book of Acts, Luke is really sensitive to women. Uh, he, he, they play a really, really big role. And, and according to Luke and the other gospel writers too, Jesus was extraordinary in the amount of time and attention he paid to women. There's some somewhat scandalous things said in, in the gospels. You might know the story of Mary and Martha and, and Mary sits at Jesus' feet, which is the position of a disciple. So even though women were not one of the official 12 in, in the gospels, women are right in the inner circle of Jesus' disciples. They're, they're lifted to equal level with the men. And in fact, Jesus breaks a bunch of social taboos in, in, being, in, in treating women with greater respect than they were taught uh, in his, his day. You know, unfortunately, the Christian religion has generally failed to do that. Um, the Christian religion has slipped back into the old ways of patriarchy and, and male superiority and the arrogance of testosterone-driven men who like to rule the world with violence. Uh, but, uh, you know, in the gospel story, uh, in fact, I think this is the real meaning of the virgin birth. It's that when God wants to really get a message through to us, God decides to bypass men entirely. And, and rather than the violent power of manhood, God's life and message is communicated through the nurturing power of motherhood. And so here, that story, that sense of how important women are continues. And here we are halfway through the book of Acts on Roman territory, and it's the same. A certain woman named Lydia, a worshiper of God, was listening to us. By the way, she, Luke has no problem saying she was a worshiper of God before any of these followers of Jesus came with their message. She was already in touch with God in some way, worshiping God. And um, she was listening to us. She was from the city of Thyatira and a dealer in purple cloth, which, you know, we say, what's that about? But that's kind of says she it's like selling yachts or or being a Lexus dealer. You know, it's luxury products for the elite. So and fascinating. So here is a non-traditional woman not identified as Mrs. So-and-so, but her own identity. She's an important woman. She's a businesswoman. She's independent. Um, the Lord opened her heart to listen eagerly to what was said by Paul. When she and her household were baptized, she urged us saying, if you've judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come and stay at my home. In other words, she's a good saleswoman. She knows how to get, you know, get her way. And she prevailed upon us. And so now her home, I'm guessing it was a pretty nice house. 
probably like the houses where a lot of y'all live, you know, good square footage, you know, nice decorations, purple cloth, you know. Uh, uh, so th- they're staying in these really nice, this really nice place in this very important city. And let's see what's going to happen next. One day as we were going to the place of prayer, we met a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners a great deal of money by fortune telling. Now, this is kind of interesting. In the Roman Empire and in the global economy today, the status of the world today is, has not changed as much as it needs to in this regard. As that beautiful song said earlier, here's something to be angry about and courageous to do something about. The Roman Empire was a patriarchal world, powerful men on top, and then women, and the, the most vulnerable of all girls, and the most vulnerable of all slave girls. So for this entourage to come to Roman colony and their first encounter after establishing kind of a base with this group of women on the margins of the city, it's a slave girl, the most vulnerable person around. Now you'd have to say, who might that be today? You know, who might that be in Nashville today? Who are the most vulnerable people in the city? And, you know, it'd be interesting to discuss that because according to Luke, when the gospel, when the good news of Jesus Christ comes to the city, it starts on the margins, starts with the disfavored people, not the powerful people, and then goes right to the most vulnerable people in the world. You know, still today, girls are the most vulnerable people in the world. Uh, HIV's fastest spread is among girls And we're talking, you know, 10 to 15-year-old girls. And you know the only way they get HIV is by being predated upon by powerful men um, around the world. And you know what's really interesting? We know this. This This is provable on so many levels. We know this. If you want to improve conditions in a society, help little girls. If you teach girls that they have control over their own bodies, that men can't tell them what to do with their body, uh, they will wait longer to have their first baby. And they'll probably have fewer babies, and they might get an education. And suddenly, when girls get an education, societies lift. It's, it's the way to lift a society faster than anything else. You've probably heard about Malala, the, uh, the young woman who was attacked by uh, fundamentalists in her religion because she was a woman getting an education. She was stepping out of the woman's place, right? She was a girl getting an education. Well, this is right where the gospel goes. Listen, folks, this is not just accidental that Luke's telling us this. The gospel goes to the lowest place, the most vulnerable person, and it's a slave girl. Today, she would have a 900 number. You know what I mean? She, she'd be a fortune teller with a 900 number or, or, or some kind of a website, right? And um, uh, while she followed Paul and us, she would cry out, these men are slaves of the most high God and who proclaim to you a way of salvation. She kept doing this for many days. Now, I want you to stop. Now, again, I know we're in Tennessee. I know we're in the South. I know everybody knows what salvation means. But look, let's be honest. For a slave girl in Roman colony, when she says the word salvation, 
it probably doesn't mean to have your original sin and total depravity overcome by the penal substitutionary atoning work of Christ so that you're regenerated from a condition of damnation and perdition. And you, you see, see I, I don't think that's in her mind. I don't think she's saying, these men will show you how to walk down an aisle when they play just as I am. So, you, you know, none of that stuff that everybody in the South is sure about would be in her mind. What would she mean? Now, have you noticed her words? She is a slave. And what does she say? These men are slaves. Of the most high God. What would she mean about that? Well, in the Roman Empire, there were lots of gods. What the Romans did, they found that Greek religion was very good for building an empire. So they basically, and by the way, if you want to build an empire, get religion on your side. Now let that sink in a little bit, folks. Uh, somebody sent me an email recently. I just knew this was a mass email because they said, we've studied your website very carefully and we think that you would be excited about a new product we have. We hope you'll help us market it. And it was a Bible wrapped in the American flag. And I thought, this is one of my friends playing a joke on me. So I hit the click through and it was actually a site. You understand? You want to build an empire, get religion on your side. If you want to torture people, get religion on your side. If you want to kill people, get religion on your side. It doesn't matter if you're Muslim, Christian. It doesn't matter if you're conservative, liberal. It doesn't matter if you're Hindu or atheist. If you want to build an empire, get religion on your side. And so in the Roman Empire, lots of religion and lots of gods. The Greek gods were very, very useful for this. And so they, they had gods to, to justify the way things were. They had gods that said that little girls like this girl ought to be slaves and that powerful men like her owners ought to make a lot of money off of them. And so the gods of the empire, here's what I think this young girl is saying. These men are not from around here. They're slaves, not of Zeus or Poseidon or Mars or all the gods of our Greco-Roman culture. These men are slaves of a God who's above all that. And they will show you the way of, now just let that word salvation hang for a minute. What would it mean? Let it hang, and we'll come back to it later. She kept doing this for many days, but Paul, very much annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I order you, by the way, Luke doesn't tell us why Paul was annoyed. Uh, I mean, you could theorize. Maybe he was annoyed because he's thinking, Look, I'm in the Roman, this Roman colony. I do not want my, my marketing department to be this young girl, right? I do not want to be associated with her. So maybe it was his own ego that was involved. I, I have a more sympathetic view of Paul. I think it was Paul sees this girl day after day and he thinks there's a human being made in the image of God and she's a slave and she gets it and she's courageous enough to deal with this terrible System, So he just gets so ticked off at the whole system and the way things are. He says, I order you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And this spirit, this knack that she had for divination is instantly gone, which means at that moment, she's lost her value to the men who own her and are making some money off of her. When her owner saw that their hope of making money was gone. Look, I know it's very hard to imagine men exploiting women for profit, but it happened back then. 
they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them to the marketplace before the authorities. When they had had them brought before the authorities, they said, these men are disturbing our city. Now look, I know it's very hard to imagine powerful business interests controlling political leaders. In our day and age, it's so hard to imagine. Back then, that sort of thing happened. Believe it or not, powerful people could get politicians to do what they wanted. It's very hard to imagine. Um, uh, and they brought before the magistrates. These men are disturbing our city. They are Jews. Now, we got a little anti-Semitism thrown in. And you might wonder, where did anti-Semitism come from? Well, for the Romans, here is the problem. The Jews drew their identity from a story of a guy named Moses. And what was Moses famous for? Moses was famous for organizing slaves and leading them to freedom. Can you see how in the Roman economy, which was like any empire, a pyramid economy, slaves at the bottom, low or no wage workers, whose hard work makes it easy for people at the top to live in luxury. Then, of course, the people at the top think that those people at the bottom deserve to be there. They're lazy. They're good for nothing. And why are they lazy? Well, if you have a slave who never gets paid and you tell him what to do, he's probably not going to jump up and say, can I do more, right? So it's, it, people see their system creates what they see, and it keeps reinforcing their assumptions. Now, I know you couldn't imagine this happening in today's world, but there it was in the ancient world. And so uh, they believed that this guy Moses challenged the gods of the Egyptian empire to lead the slaves to freedom. They believed this audacious claim that the living God was not the preserver of the status quo. The living God was willing to turn the pyramid upside down and work on behalf of the people at the bottom. There is an audacious thought. And so when they say these men are Jews, the Jews were never going to be happy campers in the Roman Empire. So do you understand? These men are unpatriotic. They don't stand for good Roman values. They're disturbing our city. They're advocating customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to adopt or observe. Customs such as showing respect to girls, slave girls, we Romans cannot do that. The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates had them stripped of their clothing and ordered them to be beaten with rods. I've always thought, why has nobody made a movie of the book of Acts? It's got nudity. It's got violence. You know, people would like it. <laughs> After they had given them a severe flogging, they threw them into prison, ordered the jailer to keep them securely. Following these instructions, he put them in the innermost cell and fastened their feet in stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. Now listen, I preached a lot of sermons on this, you know, about uh, how great it is that in prison they were singing, uh, and, you know, singing praises to God, uh, kind of, you know. <whistles> you know anyhow, uh, some of you got the Monty Python illusion there, but... Uh, and, and it's a good idea when you're in a tough place to sing and, uh, and, and look on the bright side of life and so on. But can I tell you something? I have been arrested for a good cause before. And I, I think I know what was going on in the middle of the night for Paul and Silas. Those weren't just songs of praise. They were also songs of protest. 
They were ways of Paul and Silas saying in the middle of the night, you can chain us in the innermost cell, but you're not going to shut us up. We're not going to be silent here. We're going to keep proclaiming the most high God who's above the gods of this whole system. We're going to keep singing praises to God. You can chain our bodies, but you can't silence our souls. And so they're singing praises to God and the prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly there was an earthquake so violent that the foundations of the prison were shaken and immediately all the doors were open and everyone's chains were unfastened. Now this is a very strange earthquake. Nobody was killed. Only chains were unsnapped. Pretty weird. Almost seems to be a sign of something. Chains, gates, unsnapped. So now Paul and Silas are free. When the jailer woke up and saw the prison doors wide open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself since he supposed the prisoners had escaped. So, but Paul shouted a loud voice, do not harm yourself for we're all here. The jailer called for lights and rushing in, he fell down trembling before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them outside and said, sirs, what must I do to be? How can I be brought down an aisle while they sing just as I am and extend my hand? And how can I find out I'm going to heaven when I die? And how can, listen, folks, whatever he meant by saved, it's not what you and I were taught he meant by saved. That makes no sense at all. He hasn't been saved from hell. That's not what he's talking about. He just avoided killing himself. This isn't about life after death. What could he possibly mean by that word saved? It's got to mean something to him. Just feel it for a minute. Isn't it interesting? It's the same word the slave girl used. Salvation, saved. All I can think of, I mean, you know, with, with Robin Williams' death recently, you know, suicide has been in the news. And I was a pastor for 24 years. I did quite a few funerals for people who took their own life. And in my own family, we have several close family members who suffer very deeply from depression. So I have a lot of close experience with the things that are connected with suicide. For this man to be ready to kill himself at a moment's notice like this says to me that he lived in great fear. I think his thought process must have gone something like this. If my prisoners have escaped, I will then be put in prison for letting them escape. I am a mid-level bureaucrat in the Roman system. Prisoners are below me. If I fall from the level that I have to the level where they are, I would rather be dead than have to live in this rat-infested, stinking, fetid prison that I manage. I'd rather be dead. So the most dignity I can have is to take my life before I get demoted to that place. My life is worth nothing in this system unless I can scramble up a few levels. If I were down there, I'd rather be dead. And so when Paul and Silas say, don't do it, man, we're still here. And then suddenly he thinks, 
These guys in this stinking, rat-infested, fetid prison have the opportunity to escape and be free, and they voluntarily are staying in the prison because they're concerned about my well-being. At that moment, do you understand what goes through his mind? Like suddenly he thinks, these men who I, like all Romans, would consider they're Jews, that means they're troublemakers, they don't fit in the system. These men care about me. These men care about my life. These men voluntarily submit to staying in prison so that I won't be killed. These men are free. They aren't afraid of the higher-ups in the hierarchy like I am. These men are living in a whole different world than I am. These men are free, and I'm the one who's actually in prison. Do you feel the irony of all this? What must I do to be saved? Look, there's only one possible meaning of that word saved in the context. It fits for this man and it fits for the slave girl. What must I do to be set free? Set free from the fear I live under as part of this system, as a mid-level bureaucrat in this oppressive system. Free for the slave girl who lives at the very bottom. Set free from a, of a destructive, suicidal, dangerous system. So they answered, believe on the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Now, again, I knew what all these words meant. But when you say, what would it mean in its original context in this situation? It, can't, it has to go something like this. When Paul says, Lord Jesus, we just hear Lord, and we have a definition of Lord that comes from Christian history. In the first century, Lord, kurios, was the word. It meant like sir or your honor, right? And it was applied to anyone with authority. The ultimate Lord in the Roman Empire Philippi being a Roman colony, the ultimate Lord is Lord Caesar. Look, we all know what this is from Star Wars, right? Lord Vader, right? Uh, so it, it, the ultimate authority, Lord Caesar. Kurios Kaiser is the, how you say it in Greek. For Paul and Silas to say, believe, have confidence, put your trust in Lord Jesus. Not Lord Caesar, Lord Jesus. And you will be set free. And so will everyone in your household. How would that work? Well, if, if you're a man in a system where you're afraid of everybody above you, and the way you, you realize the world works is by threats and intimidation of everybody below you, how do you think his wife and children and slaves in his household would have felt? They would have lived under the same. He would pass on what he received. Transfer your trust to Lord Jesus, you'll be set free from that whole system, and everybody under you will no longer be under that system as well. They spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. He instantly went from being their jailer to being their host. At the same hour of the night, he took them and washed their wounds, and he, took his, and, and he and his entire family were baptized without delay. I can't help but see what Luke is doing here. Look, as a writer, you know how writers think. They washed, the family washed Paul and Silas's wounds from being beaten with rods. They washed Paul and Silas, and then Paul and Silas washed them. Isn't that a beautiful picture? 
This is a reconciliation. No longer is a jailer and, and uh, prisoner. Now it's host and guests and people engaged. In a, they're, they're brought from this kind of a relationship to this kind of a relationship. He brought them into his house, set food before them. Now he's, he's, he's stopped being an agent of the Roman Empire that harms, and he's become an agent of the kingdom of God that feeds and heals. And he and his entire household rejoiced that he had become a believer in God. When morning came, the magistrate sent the police saying, let those men go. And when the jailer reported the message to Paul, saying the magistrate said word to you, therefore come out and go in peace. But Paul replied, they have beaten us in public, uncondemned men who are Roman citizens and have thrown us into the prison cell. And now they're going to discharge us in secret. Certainly not. Let them come and take us out themselves. This is the first recorded sit-in. This was Occupy Jail. This was civil disobedience by prisoners. They want us to go? Nothing doing. We won't play any part in their gross political cover-up. We're going to stay here. If they want us to go, they're going to have to come and face us as human beings themselves. Um, the police reported these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. You see how the whole system works? It's a system of fear. Everybody's afraid of the people above them. So they came and apologized to them. And they took them out and asked them to leave the city. After leaving the prison, they went to Lydia's house. And when they had seen and encouraged the brothers and sisters there, they departed. I mean, what an amazing thing. I mean, you've got to say Paul and Silas have some courage, you know? They, they had their chance to escape when the earthquake happened. They had their chance to escape when the politicians wanted to cover this thing up. And they said, no, we are not leaving until we face the people who have oppressed us and we force them to treat us as they should, as human beings with dignity. Now, folks, this is the Bible. You can take out those little verses about saved and give a different meaning to saved. But when you put it in the story and really pay attention to it, this is a pretty exciting passage. And it tells us, I think, in a very profound way, what it means to be followers of Jesus, what it means to be followers of the way of Jesus in today's world. Here's what it means. It means you're a part of a movement that's spreading around the world. And when it comes to a new location, it starts at the margins with the most vulnerable people. It starts, in fact, with the people at the very bottom. It shows dignity to the people that everybody else thinks there's something wrong with and deserve what they're getting and so on. It starts them there. And it gives dignity to them. And it confronts people at the very top of society as well. It doesn't triumph by killing torturing or oppressing its opponents. It triumphs by being willing nonviolently to suffer at the hands of the opponents without cursing, without condemning, but just, and, and in fact, keeping a song of praise and joy in the middle of it all. And it proclaims to everyone from the bottom to the top, a message 
of salvation, not an evacuation plan about how to get to heaven when you die, but a transformation plan about how this world can be if we live by the kingdom of God rather than the kingdom of Caesar and this world. I don't know what that does to you, but it gives me a very different understanding of what it means to be a follower of Christ. Here in the Bible belt, in the buckle of the Bible belt, in the little post in the middle of the buckle of the Bible belt, do we dare take the word salvation, not as defined by religious tradition, but as defined in the Bible, and say that we want to be agents, examples, messengers of that kind of message of salvation, liberation, setting people free? Do we want to show it to everybody we meet from the most vulnerable to the most powerful? Do we want to be part of a movement that's about setting this world free? Brothers and sisters, can I tell you something? It's not your fault. Believe me, it's not your fault. But when you woke up this morning, this world is in a big, big mess. It's in a mess because of what we're doing to the planet. We're, we're sucking out resources faster than the planet can produce them. We're pumping out toxins faster than the planet can absorb and detoxify them. It's not anybody's fault. It just turned out that we could make a, mo- a lot of money doing that, and these things become a system. It, it, it's not your fault, but it is our responsibility, especially if we care about our children and grandchildren living in this world. Look, when you woke up this morning, it's not your fault, but there are systems in place that mean that the people at the top don't have to work very hard and make huge amounts of money. Simply by letting their investments make money, they don't ever have to work again. And they just get richer and richer and richer. The people at the bottom slave away, working. They might not be called slaves, but they're pretty much, they pretty much are. I, I experienced this last year. I was in Thailand and I worked in a rice field. I worked my butt off for a day and I made about a dollar and 40 cents planting rice in the rice fields. Look, I was working next to a 68-year-old woman on one side and a 38-year-old man on the other side. They work harder every day than I've ever worked. And they barely squeak by. It's not your fault that this system exists, but it's out there. And and, um, I just can't help but think that the God who loved that little slave girl in Philippi and the God who loved that jailer in, in Philippi cares about all those people. And so... It's not our fault, but that's the world that we live in. And it's not your fault, but there are people who make a huge amount of money making weapons to kill each other and making bombs that could destroy us many times over. And there are religious leaders and politicians who are very happy to push us farther and farther to war in Islam and in Christianity and in Judaism and in Hinduism and in atheism. There are people who are very happy to stir up hatred and fear, pushing us closer and closer to war. It's not your fault that that happened, 
But listen, that's the world we live in. That's the system that we live in. And I'll tell you something that this world needs, brothers and sisters. This world needs salvation. Not the simple little escape kind I was taught, but the kind that we encounter on the words of Jesus, on the words of Paul and Silas, that every one of us can be part of. Let's pray. Living God, we want to be saved. We want to be set free. A lot of us, that's where we are. We're in systems of fear. We're afraid of people. We're afraid of systems. We're just so afraid. We're tyrannized. We're enslaved. We're beaten down. Sometimes it's even religious systems that enslave us. Oh, God, set us free. But God, we also understand that there are people around us who are enslaved in far worse ways than we can imagine. The planet itself is exploited and enslaved. Lord, whether it's in Syria and Iraq and Afghanistan and Pakistan, or whether it's in Ferguson, or whether it's just down the street or across the tracks, this world needs salvation. This world needs to be set free. And so we're, we're a bundle of problems and inconsistencies and failures and needs ourselves. But we just want to tell you, Lord, here we are. We want to be part of your saving, liberating work in this world. In Christ's name, amen. Would you do us the favor, Brian, of going back to your book table because you will get caught down here and uh, we will be, I told Nina this morning, I'm picking up a very famous man and she was pretty excited. Uh, we got out of the car and she said, is he really famous? <laughs> I said, well, amongst uh, my people he is, but we all would like to have 20 minutes with Brian, but uh, some of you, I would love for you to be able to pick up his books and if you have occasion to talk to him, it would be better for him to do it back there at the table. We'll try not to monopolize his time, but we have a few minutes, 30 minutes between our services, so if you'd like to go back and get a book, talk to Brian, you can. If you really want to talk to Brian, tonight's going to be great. 5.30, we're going to put him right in the crosshairs and we're going to ask him the questions that are on our mind. I thought, Brian how heretical it is that soteria, that Greek word that we get the fancy soteriology, doctrine of salvation, the first time it's used in the book of Acts, the apostles said, save yourselves. There's a lot to tease out there. Save ourselves? We need a savior. And yet, in the beginning, uh, that savior recognized the immense responsibility on our part to be co-laborers with Christ and if so be that we suffer with him, we'll be glorified together with him. We are participants in salvation. Save yourselves, the apostle said, from this untoward generation. The thing I like about Brian, and we'll leave, I like that way of reading scripture. To open the text and just read through it, and as opposed to doing a simple historical lesson to value the Bible as a Bible that places me squarely in its pages, 
That's the beauty of Scripture. And he read it well to us this morning. So to that end, thank you, Brian. Thank all of you, especially the guests for coming. Come back tonight at 5.30 and let's have a great conversation. God bless you. You're dismissed. <laughs>